I uh, almost want to say good evening, everyone. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm Donovan van der Heiden, and um, that's about how far my PowerPoint presentation goes. So um, I brought a little musical instrument along, a traditional instrument, so I'll do a little tap dance or something for you later to you know, make up for the lack of PowerPoint. Um, okay, I've... Um, I've been a voluntary community development worker for much of my life. Um, I started out when I was a teenager, um, volunteering at the World of Birds, and I loved the experience so much. Well, for those of you who don't know, World of Birds is a wild bird, bird uh, park sanctuary in, in Hout Bay. And I loved the experience so much and what I learned through it. Um, you know, meeting, you, meeting people, etc., etc., and you know, that compelled me to you know, go further with my voluntary work. And um, I've, I grew up in a, in a traditional Fisher family, my father, my grandfather, my great-grandfather. And I, when I finished matric, um, there wasn't any money to, for, my, for, for me to go you know, and pursue further education. So the inspiration from my grandfather, whom I grew up with, um, and not just through his stories, but through his own experience, you know, witnessing, you know, him being distraught when he comes from sea and there hasn't been, been much of an income. And then my grandmother's part as a fisherwoman in how to cater for us um, and make sure there's food on the table. That really inspired me to, to take things further. So um, I... I haven't, over the years, over like 20 odd years, I've, I've been involved in, in numerous voluntary community development work on a voluntary basis, from youth development to land and housing, um, to representing the local fishers um, in our community and nationally. And um, the, the thing that inspires me about my work is that you know, first of all, my grandfather was a very inspirational man. Um, through his struggles, he was always positive. And um, he did things, he made sacrifices in his life um, that really inspired me. And, you know, he helped me to, 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 take, you know, to take on the challenge for, on behalf of the fishers especially. Um, now, at the age of 17 years old, I started getting involved in informal fishing, which is referred to as poaching. Um, there's numerous reasons why there's numerous reasons why our fishers obviously get involved in in so-called poaching. You know, we've got challenges of the MPA, the marine protected areas, which has been um, enforced or form, formed um, without any, not even consultation. I don't believe in consultation. I believe we should, you know, it should be a participatory process. But there wasn't even any of that. Okay, so obviously something which used to be um, which the community saw as, as, as part ownership, something that they had to look after, was just taken away from them. Um, and they, they basically were turned against it with all the restrictions, etc. And, and as many of the speakers said, lack of education, lack of you know, capacity building and awareness, etc. Um, but I started fishing more formally in an informal sector or informal involvement at the age of 17, but the fishing skill gets taught to us in a fishing village at a younger age than that. 
because it's it's vital that you at least know the basic skills of survival when you in when you live rural or, or semi-rural, whether along the coast or inland on on farms, etc. Um, when I when I matriculated, obviously from a young age, my parents didn't foresee my future as a fisherman. They wanted that chain to be broken in our family, so they've always encouraged me to, to pursue further studies, but without money, obviously, it was very challenging. So I did manage to, about nine, nine or ten years later, get a bursary, a partial bursary. And also through my informal fishing activity, I, I also then, you know, uh, backed up my funding um, to do engineering studies. Unfortunately, by the time I finished uh, my studies at Wingfield College, um, studying diesel and marine engineering, the the companies that I was pursuing, which was Seth Marine, the beers mining, because um, I wanted to maintain my relationship to the ocean, um, if I wasn't to become a fisherman at least, um, they were all looking for matriculants, guys fresh out of matric and younger than 21 years old. So I've never really had an opportunity to make use of that. And I, I can't go into detail, unfortunately, as to how far I pursued that. Um, but it was it was quite sad the sacrifices that was made and I, I I didn't get anywhere with it. Nonetheless, I had a backup. Um, I've always wanted to get involved in the community and I always said I'll spend ten years of my life working at sea and uh, build myself up economically so that I can you know give the best to my family, get educated, etc. And hopefully after ten years, you know, I would be qualified in 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 social studies, which I would have done. Um, at sea then through correspondence but because of that backup plan or idea I had in mind of what I wanted to do next after sailing I immediately went into that instead of sulking and crying over you know the difficulties that I was facing and it's been a tremendous journey up until now my involvement you know fighting for, for, for community rights and that um, and yeah from an early age like I said you know, my father and them never encouraged me becoming a fisherman because fishermen back then wasn't really proud on being fishermen. Um, today, everyone wants to be fishermen because of the paper quarter rights, you know. Um, you don't even need to go to sea, you know, you can be a teacher and you can sit in your classroom and someone is fishing for you out there. So all of those injustices through the the ITQ system, um, the um, transferable quotas, paper quotas, um, also further, you know, made our community, you know, further brought more challenges into our community with regards to them being marginalized further and further as the true fishers. Um, so there were three main issues at the time that compelled me into becoming more involved. One was the exploitation of our vulnerable fishers, which, like I said, was witnessed through my grandfather's experience, my father and, and fellow fishermen. And then our marginal, secondly, our marginalization um, from our traditional fishing grounds. And then at the same time, while we were marginalized and taken, you know, prevented from fishing there, we saw commercial companies being allowed to fish within those reserves. Um, and then thirdly, the victimization and labeling of our traditional fishers as so-called poachers without an understanding of who we really are and engaging with us. Um, but... Yeah, when I started getting involved, especially with fishing, though, though I was um, fighting for the rights of fishers, 
okay, traditional fishes that is small small scale traditional fishes. I um, I felt that there was more to just fighting for these fishes to get a fishing right and to put food on the table. Um, when I, you know, as I grew up and I saw the challenges in our community, I felt that there's much of those challenges, the social ills, the socioeconomic um, conditions uh, that we could actually address ourselves from a community perspective and take ownership over. So that became my drive and through fighting for the fishes for their rights, I realized that that's really the only way that you can actually, um, you know, get the fishes to understand that there's, there's, there's underlying issues within our community. There's, there's, there's more than just the money that you're going to earn through that fishing, right? There's more than just, um, you know, putting food on the table. Um, there's the education of our kids. We see our schools going backwards. The uh, conditions of our streets, you know, refuge and, and, and all of that. Um, we've got a squat, we've got a, a informal settlement or squatter camp, we've got backyard dwellers and all of those things. And for me it was, okay, I'll fight for the fishers for the fishing rights, but I'll use that opportunity, um, getting minimal funding through negotiating, negotiating with the marketers who the fish is sold to, to actually, you know, try and, try and achieve my, my aims and objectives and, and also trying to show the fishers um, that we can take ownership. And in part, we did that. We, we achieved quite, quite a few things within our community. Um, and hopefully, I mean, that's one fisher that you learn how that can be done or to take ownership. But that fisherman has a family um, and an extended family within our village. And hopefully, the idea is that it spreads throughout our village and everyone, you know, joins hands and, and become involved. Um, one of my aims is also to ensure that government recognizes the rights, um, not just the rights of fishers, but also the environmental benefits um, of traditional fishers, um, or at least their practices. And I brought my own magic trick with today to demonstrate one of those things to you, which is unfortunately not, not recognized by government, um, and it's mostly a... Um, it's mostly an issue of, uh, um, of monitoring and compliance um, that, that is our main challenge. Um, this is... need to separate these guys. Okay. That is... Um, okay, this is my magic trick that I'm going to do to you. I was very inspired yesterday by the magician. Me and my daughter, he did a trick for us, and I was, we were both very inspired. So I thought I must come up with a magic trick for you guys today. Um, yeah? Okay, cool. And, um, yeah, so this is what I basically rigged up. Um, I'll tell you what the, what the magic is afterwards when I'm done. <laughs> maybe, maybe you can spot it yourself. Okay, so... Um, over time, I'm, I'm traditionally a handline fisherman who fish from, from the shore, from the rocks. And this is basically how our fishing method has evolved. From That represents a line, the wire there. But um, lumpets sewn into a line or at the end of a fishing line like that. So all of these guys would hang from a line like this basically at the end of a line. 
It's evolved from using limpets on, on there, which the, obviously this is for catching crayfish. Um, and because that, the crayfish takes that off too quickly, it evolved to using pantios. And we only used pantios that, you know, you'd, you'd, as a fisherman, you'd go look for some sexy woman. And you'd only, you'd only use pantios from a sexy woman without your girlfriend or your wife knowing, okay? <laughs> or, or with their consent, okay? It then further evolved um, to using the kind of bags that you usually see onions being packed in or oranges and that kind of thing. Now, the one that comes in between those is a sock. And I didn't bring a sock because I don't have stink socks and you've got to use a stink sock. So the smellier the sock, the more crayfish you could catch. Okay, so the last but which we... Okay, the, before that or after the, after the sock, it evolved to to using this kind of net, which is a smaller hole. It's a, a, a trawler net for sardines and pilchards. And then the problem with that was, or the challenge with that was, that the holes were too small for the crayfish to hook onto. Um, so they obviously leave, you know, um, let go earlier or too soon. And then the last one, which we currently use, is slightly bigger holes um, with a weight in it. And um, basically, now, the, the nice thing about this method of fishing is that as opposed to using ring nets and other kind of methods or traps where the crayfish would go into a central point where the bait is um, and you don't really miss out on any of them because once either they get stuck into the trap depending on the design or when you lift your ring net you know they, you catch what's in there with this method the crayfish has ample time to let go um, so yeah it's, it's almost I don't believe in luck but it's almost by luck what, you know, whatever you pull up, manage to pull up out of the water. Um, so in the time that you pull up, it's all, it's all about your skill, how slow you pull, how fast you pull, um, how little movement there is in your pool, you know, etc., etc. So unfortunately, this is not supported at the moment by government because, like, if you look at Bay, for instance, which is a reserve, um, we don't have an open area with some of the other areas that also has reserves or protected areas. At least they have an open area. And that is still one of our struggles, is to get an area where we can actually fish legally. Um, and, yeah, now government, basically, what, what they've said is that, you know, we've got, to fish with, we've got to fish on boats. Now, the thing is, it's nothing for me to fish on a boat, to, to get a boat and to go out to sea. And that I've been out there... Um, but this method of fishing, you don't catch as much as you would catch when you go out on a boat. You don't earn as much. But what is often missed out on in terms of a, of a fisherman, a traditional fisherman's life, is the spiritual connection um, that he has with the ocean, that he has with nature. It's, there's a ritual involved in us preparing our bait, in preparing our equipment, in going out to sea. Um, you know, the involvement of your wife or your girlfriend or your family you're going and you're coming, you know. So that, unfortunately, is never considered or, or borne in mind when, when laws are made and when um, marine parks are formed is, as to engaging with us on the ground as a community. Okay, because we are also passionate about the sea. We have a direct um, responsibility and a direct reason to be more worried about the ocean than anyone else because we live directly from it. So we used to be the custodians, you know, um, over many years. And we used to look after the marine resources through these kind of traditional and indigenous methods and knowledge of fishing. Um, 
So yeah, um, it's a very controversial industry, unfortunately, many challenges. Um, but there are positive things happening as well. At the moment, we've got the small-scale policy that's been drafted, um, that's been, been finalized, and we're just waiting for government to basically sign off on it. Um, and that's resulted out of negotiation process of various stakeholders, government, local communities, um, and institutions uh, that have all come together and actually, you know, put, put their hard-working effort into, into developing this policy. So hopefully, hopefully when this policy is signed off, um, it will change things for the better um, for all of us and, and for the resources. Now, to finish off, um, I just want to show you where the magic of my trick comes in. Because I'm, yeah. I have taken you over, uh, oops, it's not that. <laughs> I've taken you from a few ten years of, um, of evolvement of, of, of a traditional fishing method. I've taken and, and summed it up for you basically in two, three minutes. Now, you know, you haven't probably noticed that that's my trick. So there was a magical trick within my presentation that wasn't even noticed, which means that was the magic of it. You know, it even went unnoticed. That's how magical it is. So there we go. Thank you.